0: Take your Bible this morning and look back to John chapter 12 as we come back to our exposition. And we find ourselves in John 12, 27, and then let me read through 36, and we will take a couple weeks to do that. But John 12, 27, you follow along. There Jesus said, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour but for this purpose i have come to this hour father glorify your name then a voice came from heaven i have glorified it and i will glorify it again the crowd that stood there and heard it said that heard that it said that it had thundered others said an angel has spoken to him jesus answered this voice has come for your sake not mine now the judgment of the world Uh, Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, light, the light is among you for a while, for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of lights. When we come to a really an amazing portion of scripture this morning, it really is a Mystery, if you will, into the suffering and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ to fulfill his mission to redeem us, to redeem sinners. I mean, this passage is filled with emotion. It's filled with pathos. His death is near. I remind you as you come into John chapter 12, even though there's 21 chapters again, that this is Passion Week. That that text that I just read is likely Tuesday or Wednesday. His death is just a few days away. In fact, you remember, look at John 12, 23. After the Greeks came to him, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We noted a couple weeks ago that that hour was always put has not yet arrived. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But here, as we get to the Passion Week, and as we get to that question by the Greeks to see Jesus, now he declares that the hour has in fact come. It is the hour of his death. It is upon him. Look at verse 24 of chapter 12. It's clear there. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruits. And so he is on his way to that death. In fact, glance down in the text where we read in verse 32, when he said there, and when I am lifted up from the earth obviously a reference to the cross. Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so this is the theme here in John 12 regarding his death, but it's also a theme, is it not beloved, in all of the scripture. It tells us in the book of Revelation in 13.8 that he was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. In fact, even when you go back and look at the birth of Christ, the name that the angel gave him was Jesus. And there in the text and the gospel, he would save his people from their, what? Sins, and he would do that by his death. But if you backed up even, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophecies spoke about his death. Daniel chapter 9 says that he will be Cut off. That is a term describing his death. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, says that he will be pierced. In other words, he will die being pierced, a reference to his death. Of course, we're familiar with Isaiah 53. It describes his substitutionary death on our behalf. And so it is the theme of Scripture, it is the theme of the Old Testament. In fact, when you come into the New Testament, his death is the dominant theme of the gospel. In fact, did you know that nearly one-fifth of all four gospels is directed at the events of his death and resurrection? One-fifth. It is a dominant theme, Old Testament, New Testament, and the gospels. In fact, do you remember after the resurrection of Jesus, when Jesus was speaking to the two disciples On the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, it says there, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So when you really look at all of the scripture, that is a main narrative that falls all the way through it. In fact, in the epistles, Peter tells us that he would redeem us by his blood. John the Apostle writing in 1 John 3, 5 says that he appeared to take away sins. And of course he would do that by his death on the cross. I think we're familiar with Romans five ten that says while we were enemies we will reconcile to God through the death of his son. So you start in the book of Genesis in chapter 3. The promise there of the cross and the coming Messiah. You go all the way to the book of Revelation. The cross is the theme of heaven. Revelation 5, 6. It says between the throne and between the four living creatures. There John said, I saw a lamb standing as if slain. When he had taken the scroll, the living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you redeemed and ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So it's amazing, even when you get to the scene in heaven, there were the elders, and there were those creatures falling down before the Lamb, Singing, Worthy Art Thou, because He Was Slain. I mean, even today at Grace Church of the Valley, we have the cross behind us, do we not? There it is. Every time we come into this building, we're remembering the power of the cross, and it's central in our life, it's central in our church. Paul said, we preach Christ and him, what, crucified. And today what we're going to do in John chapter 12 is kind of pull back the curtain and give you a window into the very soul of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, many writers have spoken of the cross, and by that I mean biblical writers, That is Scripture, what Daniel says, and what the psalmist says, and what Zacharias says, and what Isaiah says. It's the Word of God. Paul speaks of the cross. Peter speaks of the cross. Luke speaks of the cross. They all really speak of the cross. But this morning, this is our Lord's own commentary on the cross. This is his commentary on what was about to happen in just a few days. Now, as you look back down at the text, I remind you that in John chapter 12, specifically verse 12, it is the triumphal entry. Remember, he came in on that Sunday. It says in 12.12, the next day the large crowd had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Remember I said that hundreds of thousands of people, if not according to Josephus, millions descended upon Jerusalem at this time. Not only the Jews living in Jerusalem, but they came from all over to celebrate the Passover season. And so with that season came these crowds. In fact, look at verse 19. The Pharisees said to one another, you see It says that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Crowds were everywhere. Maybe you remember just in the previous chapter, Lazarus had been raised. The Jewish people were ready for the Messiah to deliver them from Rome's tyranny. And yet as Jesus comes in on the triumphal entry, he comes headed in, he would know, to go to that cross. Now, as we approach the text this morning, and I believe next morning on uh, the baptism Sunday, I want to look at some insight into our Lord's death, okay? And then the amazing implications that it has for us, okay? Kind of going to take a, a, a close look at his own commentary on his death, and then the implications that are for us. I want to look at the son's attack, okay? Okay? Then I want to look at the Father's answer, and then I want to look at the believer's accomplishment, okay? The son's attack on his soul, the father's answer in response to his prayer, and then the believer's accomplishment by the effects of the cross, okay? And we're going to just walk through this as we do each Lord's Day. First, the son's attack. The son's attack. Pick up the text. Look at it there in verse 27. He said, Now is my soul troubled. Stop there just for a second. Now is my soul troubled. Certainly he had just spoken of his coming death within a matter of days. And the sheer horror of the crucifixion fills his soul so much that out of the soul of the Savior, he burst out in anguish and he declares there that my soul is troubled. Now he mentions that word troubled. If you just glance back in your Bible at John eleven thirty three, do you remember he used that word there at the tomb there of Lazarus when Jesus in 33 saw her weeping and the Jews had come with her also weeping. It says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and here's our word again he was greatly troubled. And I ask you this morning how could the Savior be troubled? There are some who say that this is a Sign of weakness. Some even ask the question if his troubled spirit was sin. Some just ask if maybe he got to this point that his hour was not in the future. His hour had come and it was the trouble in his soul over the physical pain how do we explain this attack? What is the trouble? In fact, what's fascinating about this for me is I have read a lot of biographies, and I have read of martyrs that would appear to be braver. What does this mean that his soul is troubled? I mean, have you ever read the accounts of great men and great women of the faith? I mean, if you just picked up a biography on the martyrs of the reign of Bloody Mary, there were martyrs that died singing psalms while they were burned alive. And yet here, in the hour of his death, His soul is troubled. One writer said that his soul was troubled over the disciples. In other words, they were saying he wasn't really troubled. He had no second thoughts on the cross. He had no hesitation on the cross. He was troubled for his disciples. And I really think that's not correct. Correct. There's something more here. There's something far more here. This is, in the Greek language, a very strong word. In fact, it's even hard for me to convey it, but I'll give you the sense of it. It's the word for horror. You could even look at the word as revulsion. Maybe if I just tried to say it succinctly to you, I would say that it was a tremendous disturbance of the soul. This was from a deep sense of shock and horror to his own soul. Now the word is used in other places of other people in sinful cases. In fact, it was used of Herod when he had heard in Matthew chapter 2 that a baby had been born. It said that he was troubled greatly, and so he sent his executioners out to execute every male child. He was troubled, and you can gain the sense of agitation there, anguish there. In fact, it's the same word used in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 26 when the disciples saw Jesus coming to them, walking on the water, and it said that in some translations they were terrified. And so I ask you again, why is he so troubled, if you will? Why is he in this phrase terrified? I mean, this is an insightful look that he gives us into the son's attack or the son's anguish. In fact, let me say this. It is not the anguish of the physical suffering at the cross. That's what a lot of people think it is. And in fact, when you look at the movies of the death of Christ, many of them go to great lengths to show you the physical agony, but I'm just telling you from the Scripture, those descriptions in the Bible are few. So a lot of people think he's in trouble over the the looming cross and over the physical suffering on the cross. Or maybe he's just troubled at the crucifixion itself. But I would say to you, beloved, there's more there. There's more than that. There's much more than that. In fact, he had already prophesied that he was going to be delivered up in Jerusalem, that he was going to be beat, that he was going to be spit upon, that he was going to be crucified. But this is not the anguish of his soul. You say, what is it then? Well, I think you remember that the trouble here of his soul is the spiritual agony that he faced for facing God's wrath. That's his trouble. He went to the cross and faced the judgment of God going to the cross for sins he did not commit. I mean, the, the profound truth is this, is that he bore our sin. Amen? Amen. He became a curse for you. And so as this hour comes, he's troubled because he faces not the physical elements that he did though, but he faces far more than that of becoming a curse and facing the judgment of God for your sin. That the sinless one would bear your sin. I mean, the trouble, beloved, was the horror of taking The sin of the world and facing the wrath of God that was caused by sin. So beloved, I don't believe he's troubled here over the nails, over the crown of thorns. I don't think he's necessarily talking here about the physical pain. I don't think he's talking about the suffering. I don't think he's talking about the sheer horror of the crucifixion that fills his soul, I think, beloved, here he cries out. He he bursts out, if you will. He's troubled internally. It's an inner anguish. It's an inner toil. It's an inner uh, disturbance. He's troubled. In fact, in his humanity, it tells us in the other gospel That an angel from heaven came to strengthen him. It's an amazing thought. Here he is, God in the flesh, but in his humanness, as he moves to the cross in Gethsemane, an angel strengthens him because he is in this agony. His soul is in agony. He said, Well, how much trouble? How much agony? Luke 22 says that he was praying and his sweat became like what? Drops of blood falling to the ground. In other words, beloved, that battle was so fierce that his capillaries burst under the pressure. His blood begins to drip through his skin. Listen, he was born to die. He voluntarily laid down his life. But it doesn't lessen the overwhelming reality of the sinless one becoming sin for us. And so he prays. You say, well, what does he pray? Well, look down in the text. He said, my soul is troubled. And he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. In other words, he's praying here. His soul is in anguish. And he says, save me from this hour. Now from before, we know that's the hour of his death. What does this prayer mean? And I think it's as important, which is why we're here. I mean, some say that he, it's almost like I don't even want to say it, but I'm just telling you. Some say that he wavered for a moment in his obedience to go to the cross. It's almost, Lord, what what shall I say? Save me from this hour. And he he wavered in his humanity that way. In fact, one writer used the phrase he rebelled even momentarily regarding the horrific action of the cross. And I just say no way that is ridiculous he said what do we have here then well he's asking a rhetorical question father if there is another way to redeem you or to redeem my people the redeem the ones that you have given me then show me but as you know it's jettisoned in fact look at verse 27 again I, I do think this is interesting. He says, and what shall I say? Question mark. Okay. Father, save me from this hour, question mark. And they kind of put the question in the midst of the text, but I think it's best to read it as one sentence in the Greek when he'd say, Father, save me from this hour. But he says, For this purpose, I have come to this hour. So in other words, the thought came there, certainly not in rebellion, certainly not in a momentary indecisive thought that he had. But in his humanness, he's crying out, Lord, is there another way? But there is no other way. I've come to this hour. I came for this very purpose. In other words, Jesus said, it is for this very reason that I came to this hour. He cannot be spared from this hour he must face again his unswerving commitment to obey his Father's will. This was his life. This was his testimony. Look back in John chapter 4 just for a moment. Look back there. And certainly as we're glancing at the desire of the Lord Jesus Christ, should it not be our desire? In John 4, 34, there he said, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Boy, what a a great reality. In other words, He came and He said His very food, His necessary bread, if you will, is to do the will of Him who sent me and accomplish the work that He sent me to do. Look over at the next chapter in chapter 5 in verse 30. He said there, you remember, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and I... And my judgment is just because, he said, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is his mission. This is his passion. Look over at the next chapter, at John chapter 6, in verse 38 there. He's so clear on that discourse of the bread of life that in verse 38 of 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who who sent me. And so this is his will. I came for this very purpose. I think his prayer here, as you turn back to John 12, is very similar to his prayer in Gethsemane in Mark 14. Do you remember in that other account, he said, sit here while I pray. There it is up on the screen if you need it. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. And he began to be greatly distressed, and here's our word, and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, you know this phrase, that the hour might pass from him. But then again, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He so said, what cup? The cup of wrath. The cup that would he would bear for the accumulated sins of all the world, if you will. And, that he, and yet he says there, yet not what I will, but what you will. Ever, ever in submission to his Father's will. And so I, I think he's just... Asking a rhetorical question. Is there another way? But there is no other way. Hendrickson, the commentator, said it is the vivid realization of the inexpressibly dreadful character of his impending descent into hell. That shook the human soul of Jesus to its very depths. Listen, he did that for you. He redeemed you. And though his soul was filled with terror, with trouble, he did not even for a single moment ever rebel against the will of the Father. He asked the Father if there's some other way in which the Father's will can be carried out other than the voluntary, other than the substitutionary atonement, atoning death that may be opened and may, that he may be saved from this terrible agony of the cross but there is no other way and so beloved jesus bore the guilt of our sins alone god the father god almighty god the creator god the lord of the universe majestic in holiness would pour out his wrath on his only begotten son He would pour out the full fury of his wrath. Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin that God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. And he's anticipating that here in his prayer. It's just a couple days away. Here is truly, possibly the greatest moment in the history of the world for us. Justice would not be winked at. It would be punished fully in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul declares it this way that he made him who knew no sin to become what? Sin. He became sin. Not that he became a sinner, but he took the weight. He bore, if you will, the the wrath that you and I deserved. In fact, I've read this before, but it came back to me. R.C. Sproul in those words said that on the cross Jesus becomes in the sight of God the most grotesque display of ugliness imaginable. He is now polluted with the cumulative filth of the sin. He bears for the sheep. Listen, I I think that is what troubled him. But, But you ask, what compelled him to go forward. I mean, certainly he's in submission to his father's will. I don't even know if it's fair to ask this question, but there's a window into his soul. What motivated Christ to die for you, for me? And I think it's here in the text. It's found in his prayer to the father. In fact, look at The text again in 27. He says, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then here's his prayer in 28. Father, he says, glorify your name. So what do you you mean glorify your name? Listen, we already said that it was his great delight to do the will and the work of God. And here as the Lord prays if there's another way, but there is no other way. I've come for this purpose, this hour, and he says, here's how I'm praying. Father, glorify your name. That's his passion. That's his delight. And I would submit to you that your passion and your delight should be to live for his glory, right? You say, why am I here? You're here for something beyond yourself. You are to give your life for him who died for you and shed his blood and to live to glorify him. And you see this even here in the humanity of Christ. Father, I'm praying that your name would be honored. That your name would be glorified. You you say, well, what's he praying? Well, he's praying not for his own will, not for his own agenda, not for his own desire, No, he doesn't have any rights. He came to do one thing, and that was to please the Father. He came here, and he says, listen, I came to this hour, and now he prays, Father, glorify your name. And so Jesus, in his prayer, says, my greatest desire, is that yours? In every relationship, in every business, in every moment, in every day, I'm asking myself that. In other words, he's praying, my greatest desire, my greatest delight is to glorify God, your name. You say, what does that mean? Father, glorify your name. I think that's just simply, we want to glorify, I want to glorify your character is what Jesus is praying. I, I want your name to be praised. I want your person to be revealed. I want your name to be exalted. That's his prayer. I mean, it's amazing when you think about his life. This becomes, and was, and always was, his supreme desire. In other words, everything else takes a backseat to the glory of your name, and what would that it be that that would be the desire of our hearts? His prayer in the face of death is that God's character be put on display. This is have you ever looked at it that way, the son's chief end. I mean, we say that in the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is to what? In glor- is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And, but have you ever thought about that? That that was the son's chief end? That that's what his desire was? Listen, let me just put it this way in his humanity. He loved God's glory more than he loved his own desire. And so he says, "Is there another way?" And there is no other way. I came to this hour, and my only prayer is, "I want to glorify you, God." So it's an amazing insight into the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ, and an amazing insight even into the trinitarian relationship. In fact, D. A. Carson, the great scholar, said, "The servant who does not stoop to do his, to, who does not stoop to his own will." but who performs the will of the one who sent him even to death on the cross is the one who glorifies God. So the son's desire, beloved, is to glorify his father's name. And I would just say this to you. It removes any sense of self-centeredness, right? It is removing from the Lord Jesus Christ any desire, any selfish desire for his own gain. The son consciously chooses the way that led to his death on the cross for you. That's the son's attack on his soul. You say, well, what happened after that attack? What happened after that prayer? Well, let me take you to the father's answer. Here's the second insight is the father's answer. Look at it in verse 28. It says, then a voice came from heaven... I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now just stop there. Here's the son's attack on a soul, but here's the father's answer. He answers him. And again, you see this amazing relationship in the Trinity. God speaks from heaven, and he speaks in a voice. So what is he doing? He is confirming the son's death on the cross. He is confirming, in fact, that the Son has glorified his name and that the Son will glorify his name again. Now, just briefly here, this is the third time a voice has come out of heaven in the Gospels. The first time it came out at his baptism. In Matthew 3, 17, behold, a voice from heaven. And here's what the voice of God said from heaven. This is my beloved Son With whom I am well pleased. In other words, the voice was confirming his baptism. Confirming that he was going in the manner of all righteousness. But there's a second time the voice came out. It's at his transfiguration. Matthew 17, a voice from the cloud. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And now thirdly, here's the third voice right here in verse 28. It's the voice that is baptism. It's the voice that is transfiguration. It's the voice that comes out in answer to his prayer. It is the Father's confirmation of the Son's identity on earth. It's a confirmation of his death. Now, just a little thought. It just kind of struck me. Look at the text in 28. He said, I have glorified it. And if you notice that in 28 at the end, and I will glorify it again. If you ever just stop to pause on that, what is the it? I have glorified it, and I have glorified it again. What is that? Well, you just go back to the antecedent in the previous verse, or when it's or in the same verse, Father, glorify your what? name, okay? Jesus' supreme desire here is to glorify the name of God, to glorify his name. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But what's interesting here, Piper asked this question in some of his writings. Have you ever looked at it and thought about it this way? What is the chief end of God? We often say what is the chief end of man, rightfully so. But what is the chief end of God? And the chief end of God is to glorify his own name. You say, well, why would God want to glorify his own name? And the profound answer is that he gives us what is best. And what is best is himself. And if you have a struggle with that, then you must have yourself on too high of a pedestal. He is God. And Jesus' main desire was to glorify the name of God. But he says, I have glorified it, God says. I've glorified my own name, beloved. He's God. And he gives you what's best. And what's best is himself. And the Father says, look at it again in verse 28. He said, I have glorified it. In other words, the Father answers. This is what the text is saying. I've already answered your prayer, Jesus. I've already glorified it. I've already glorified my name in it. And here it's in response, I believe, to the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry. In other words, his life has glorified God. Look back at John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, it will tell us this. Do you remember this? In other words, he says, I've glorified it. It's, it's past tense, but in, in John 7, 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Here it says very clearly that he seeks the glory of him who sent him. That was the passion, the direction of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look over at John chapter 8 in verse 29. He says there, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. In 829, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And so back in John 12, 28, when he says I've glorified it, I think he's just saying, Jesus, your whole ministry, 33 years up to this point, has been a resemblance of his glory. Remember when even at his birth, the angels cried out and said, glory to God in the what? In the highest. Just even in his birth, his birth glorified the Father. In fact, look back in chapter 11, in verse 40, after he was, or just about before he raised Lazarus, he said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? In other words, God's glory was going to be put on display both in his life and in his work. And he had already displayed God's glory through Christ, but it wasn't his life. But look back in the text in 12. It says there in verse 28, excuse me. He says, I've glorified it, verse 28, and I will glorify it again. In other words, the voice that came out said that I've glorified my name throughout your ministry. And now Jesus is assured in his suffering that our Lord will glorify his own name again in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the father's answer. He said, as you glorified me in life. As you glorified me in ministry, I will glorify my name again through your death. In other words, this, did, this plan did not fall out of motion. He was not just taken over by wicked and evil men. He voluntarily laid down his life for us. He voluntarily gave himself for you. He voluntarily would take it up again. But he says here, I'm going to glorify my son. Not only did my voice confirm this at his baptism. Not only did my voice confirm this is my son in whom I am well pleased at his transfiguration. But now as he goes to the cross in anticipation of that cross, he says, I will glorify it again. So the voice comes out, but you'll know, look down in the text, the crowd didn't get it. The crowd just stood there and heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. This is very interesting. They hear the voice, but they didn't know what it was. They hear the voice, but they think it's thunder. They hear the voice, but they couldn't quite decipher it. They think, some did, that it was an angel it's interesting that thunder was seen in the theophany. Remember when God came down on the mountain at Exodus chapter 19? In fact, God rescued his, his people in the book of Psalms. And it was pictured as a fierce thunderstorm sweeping down on his enemies in Psalm 18. You go all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation Peals of thunder came from God's throne. And so thunder is a picture of the majesty and the voice of God. But others said an angel spoke to him. In fact, you see this in the Old Testament. Either an angel or an angel of the Lord spoke to Hagar. An angel or an angel of the Lord spoke to Abraham in Genesis 22. It spoke to Moses. It spoke to Elijah. It spoke to Daniel and so forth. But I think here the crowd just couldn't understand. They, were, they couldn't see. They needed to have the scales lifted from their eyes. But I think he spoke this. Look at verse 30. Very interesting. He said, This voice has come for your sake, Jesus said, and not mine. That's very interesting. How do we explain this? Wasn't the voice an answer to his prayer for his sake? because his soul was troubled, but he says here, no, it was actually for ours. He said, well, in what way, Scott? I think in this way, that the disciples would remember his voice, and it would be for them a divine confirmation. It would be for them that, that though they lifted him up on the cross, that though the devil thought that he had defeated Jesus, they would remember that the voice that came from heaven was not a voice of defeat, but a but a thrill of victory. It was not the final destruction. It was the ultimate glorification of his life and of our salvation. So we've seen the son's attack. We've seen, secondly, the insight is the father's answer. And then the third insight is the believer's accomplishment. Just shortly here. So what were the effects of the cross? Well, what were the accomplishments? Well, it's amazing. Look at 31. Now, is the judgment of this world. And now will the ruler of this world be cast out? Let me just show a few of those accomplishments. A few of the key features. Number one, the cross judged the world. And and again, he's praying in anticipation here. It, It judged the world. Look at verse 31. Now, in other words, not before, but now, as my cross is imminent is the judgment of the world. Here, the cross judged the world. What does that mean now is the judgment of the world? Listen, on the cross, sin was judged. It is the judgment on the sinfulness of sin. It is the judgment on the wickedness of sin. It is the judgment of God on the evil of sin. God certainly said in the text and other places that this is my son and he's well pleased in his son. But listen, beloved, sin is so ugly that his only begotten son makes satisfaction against God's wrath by his death. And so when he died on the cross, it is a looming picture of his judgment on the world. It was a judgment upon sin itself. Sin, beloved, is such an ugly master. Sin is what separates you from God. Sin is what separates families from each other. Sin is what creates havoc and murder in our country and racism and all those things. And God hates every form of sin because he's pure and because he's holy. In fact, sin cast out Satan out of heaven itself. And so his death, his cross, was judgment upon the world. It was judgment upon the wicked evil system that was in utter rebellion against the person of God. Now, beloved, this judgment is both negative and it's positive. You say, how is this judgment negative? Well, certainly it, it must be because look at John chapter 12. Look at verse 48. He said, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge and he said the word that I have spoken will judge him on that day. In other words, he's gonna judge the world by his person, by his presence, by his light and it is his word that will actually be in judgment and so when he dies on the cross, he judges the world and his death is a judgment to those in rebellion against him. Listen, to reject the son is to reject God himself. And so the awful news of judgment and condemnation, though, is also news of our deliverance by his death on the cross, right? It's judgment on the world for sin and those in rebellion who do not receive him. But for those who receive him, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God. In fact, look over at John chapter 5. Here's a positive element of that. Do you remember that great statement in John chapter 5? It says this in verse 24. It said, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word, interesting that they thought it was thunder. They thought it was the voice of an angel. But here he says, Whoever hears my word in 524 and believes him who sent me has eternal life and he does not come into What? Judgment, but has passed from death to life. Listen, if you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have listened to him, if you've come to him by faith, the text says there, you do not come into judgment. So this judgment is positive, but this judgment is also a judgment upon those and they're condemned already according to John 3.18. So in the death of Christ, sin was judged. He died in your place. But not only did he judge the world, but he also judged the ruler of this world. Look back in John chapter 12. It says there in verse 31, he said, not only is this judgment of this world, the coming cross, but now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Interesting thought. What do you mean he's cast out? In other words, at the cross, Satan is going to lose his influence, I think. He's going to lose his, his dominion, if you will. In other words, the cross may appear to be a place of defeat, but in actuality, it's a place of triumph. Now, you might ask the question there in 1231, who is the ruler of this world in verse 31? Who is that? I mean, I think we understand that's a reference to Satan. It's said as such in John chapter 14 in verse 13 there. Again, he is called the ruler of this world. And so he's the ruler of this world. And so the cross, beloved, dealt sin and dealt death a death blow. Satan, even this day, is a conquered, defeated foe. Jesus will say later later in 1430, he has no claim on me. Now you say, what do you mean that the ruler of this world will be cast out? We know from the book of Peter that he's roaming about like a lion. But beloved, I would say he's on a short leash, is he not? One said that he flails around aimlessly, randomly, and wickedly. But he is a defeated enemy. In other words, when our Lord died on the cross, he judged your sin. Amen. and when He died on the cross, the ruler of this world has no claim on you. Oh, he roars about, but he is a defeated enemy. Now it doesn't mean that evil is is never going ug- to kind of rear its ugly head again if G- if that would have Been true, then Jesus would not have prayed for our protection from the evil one in John 17, 15. Evil is real, but the message of John is that by his death and the lifting up of the Son of Man, evil has been decisively condemned on your behalf. Do you remember this verse? It comes up next in Hebrews in chapter 2, in verse 14. Maybe if we go to the next slide. It will say this, that he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might render, uh, he might destroy the one who has power over death. In other words, he died in your place to destroy the one who had the power over death. And who is that? It's the devil and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So listen, here's the accomplishments of the cross. Your sin has been judged. Here's the accomplishment of the cross. He dealt the blow to Satan himself. You, in this room, no longer have to fear death. Here's why. Because Christ destroyed the one who held the power of death. And he died and he was raised on the third day. And in that motion, the Bible tells us that he was cast out. Now, beloved, we know, at least according to Revelation 20, that at the end of the tribulation, Satan will, will be cast into the bottomless pit for the duration of the millennial kingdom, Revelation 20, 1 through 3. We also know that at the end of the millennium, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire where he will be punished for all eternity, Revelation 20, verse 10. But in the meantime, he's been dealt a death blow. You say, well, Scott, what what are the implications for my life on these two accomplishments for the believer? Well, number one, let me just say two things. The cross delivers us from the guilt of sin. I mean, I just would say that, that he died as your substitute. He released you from your sin. He released you from the power of sin. He releases you from the guilt of that sin. You say, well, Scott, I... I, I still feel guilty. In fact, some of you feel guilty every single day of your life. You lose your assurance. You know, you don't lose your eternal security because he promised to hold on to you and I will never let anyone snatch you out of my, what, hand. That's eternal security. He's holding on to you. But you do lose your assurance. But listen. You have to realize that every time you feel that way, that all of your sin was judged upon the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ as he went to the cross for you. Listen, I could just only say in this clarity is that he took the judgment you deserve. He forgave all your past sin. He forgave all your present sin. He will forgive all your future sin based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I think he gave these accomplishments for us. In other words, he came and he took the judgment you deserve that you might have eternal life. So he takes the power of it. He takes the guilt of it. One day we'll get in heaven and he'll take the very presence of our sin. But the cross also delivers us, secondly, from the lie. The lie that you're not worthy. In other words, he's going to cast out all doubts and all lies when the sun was lifted up. You said, well, Scott, what, what are you talking about? I, I just think specifically I'm trying to say this. He removes the lie. In other words, he loved you. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 says, He is the accuser of the brethren who accuses you before God, what? Day and night. And I'm telling you, by his death, he removes any doubt. He removes any lie. Satan would love, he can't strip you away from God. You were already ordained before the foundation of the world. Nothing can ever snatch you out of his hand. Jesus said, of all that the Father gives to me, I will lose what? Nothing. He said, well, then what he's going to do? He's going to just accuse you before God day and night. He's gonna make you feel like you're just an unworthy, miserable sinner. Why did he even save you? In fact, look at your sin. Even though he died for you, you still sin. And I think what our Lord's given us here is the accomplishment to the believer. In other words, that his judgment has been taken on your behalf and the lie of Satan who accuses you before God is not a real accusation, it's a lie. And so the cross, beloved, is is the dividing point of all human history. Can you believe all that he's done for you on that amazing cross? Listen, we have a perfectly obedient savior at every point, do we not? Well, I know we do.